Professor Earl Fry from Brigham Young University. And he'll be talking about NAFTA uh, and the EU and the prospects uh, for the new potential uh, trade and investment partnership. Well, today we're going to look at the prospects for an expanded NAFTA and the creation of a NAFTA EU trade and investment grand bargain. Uh, let's get started. As an introduction, uh, as you know, we've had the North American Free Trade uh, Agreement since 1994, when it went into effect, fully implemented over a 15-year period. Now have the Canada-EU Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement, CETA, which has basically been agreed to but not ratified yet. And, of course, uh, Ottawa is hoping that will occur in the very, very near future. Uh, Prime Minister Harper is actually talking about the issue as he meets in the G7 summit in Bavaria uh, and hoping it will be done uh, quickly. Then we're also negotiating the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, what we call TTIP, and that would be between the United States and the European Union um, and would be a very, very significant agreement. Uh, so can we do a grand bargain between NAFTA, between the NAFTA, of course, is the United States, Canada, and Mexico, and the EU? By the way, even before we would get TTIP, we will get the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which will involve the United States with its two NAFTA partners and uh, another 10 nations or so, both in Asia and in Latin America. And that would be, if everything goes as expected, that would be ratified before TTIP. Uh, would be ratified. They're getting pretty close on the, uh, on the TPP. The context, which I think is very important, is we have been worried about transatlantic drift and global shift toward the Asia-Pacific area. The, the transatlantic drift is basically, are we in North America and in Europe, are we beginning to fall behind in a variety of categories? And what in the world does that mean? And particularly if we get to the point in 2050 where some are arguing, doesn't mean it's going to happen, but some are arguing that over half the world's population, gross domestic product, trade, exports, and uh, direct investment will be concentrated in uh, Asia, over half. And that's a situation we have not seen for well over two centuries, if not more. So how will we do, the North Atlantic nations, in comparison to how other parts of the world would do, particularly Asia and the Pacific, and what will that mean in a variety of categories? For example, you know, uh, what will be the rules of the game in international relations? Will they change dramatically? What will be the geostrategic implications of a dramatic shift such as some are envisioning by not that long into the future, by mid-century? Now, CETA... Canadian specialists know about this, of course. The European Commission has said it's the most far-reaching bilateral trade agreement negotiated to date. Stephen Harper has said it's the biggest deal our country has ever made. And remember, they made the NAFTA agreement. They had the free trade agreement with the U.S. in 1989. So he's saying this is even bigger. Uh, it's a 1,600-page document. took five years to negotiate. It will provide Canada with preferential access to more than half of the world's economy when you include its, its access to NAFTA. It includes liberalized trade and investment linkages, controversial investor-state dispute settlement uh, mechanism, easing of government procurement rules at all levels. As you know, Canada has a federal system. And some easing in agricultural trade, some harmonization of rules, standards, and procedures. 
but the accord still must be ratified by both sides. The big hang-up, of course, is still the EU. You know, if it gets ratified by the EU, it's going to get ratified in Canada, right? And so we're wondering, you know, when will that happen? So that basically is Canada doing its free trade deal uh, with the European Union. Again, agreed to, but not formally ratified. TTIP, on the other hand, again, uh, would uh, st uh, began to be negotiated in uh, the summer of 2013. Involves the U.S. with roughly 320 million people today, the European Union with the 28 nations and 507 million people. Uh, we just had the ninth round of negotiations between the two sides, actually held in uh, at the end of April of this year in New York City. And at the same time, as I mentioned, the uh, U.S. is negotiating the TPP, the last set of negotiations held in uh, Hawaii. And they're, they started earlier. They're, they're more advanced than the negotiations with the uh, EU. And you can see the number of uh, countries uh, engaged in this proposed Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership. This is a map I've been doing for many years. I don't know if you notice in Saturday's Independent, but this map with very few variations was published in the Independent. I did get in touch with the author uh, and basically mentioned to him, I've been doing this for you know, over 20 years now. Actually, he was uh, reproducing a, a map that was, uh, uh, that was published in the Washington Post a week ago which again didn't give the attribution it was supposed to, that little thing down at the bottom, you know, C, you know, copyright 2014 or OH Fry. And I don't care, you know, I'm not looking at any royalties, but I'm looking for at least a proper attribution. But I'd been doing this for a long time, uh, particularly in a book published in 1998, which is called The Expanding Role of State and Local Governments in U.S. Foreign Affairs, and it was published by the Council on Foreign Relations. And it, it, what I do is basically, instead of showing the state, I show a nation which that year produced about the same in goods and services as that state. So you notice out west in Utah, where I currently live, and right next to it, uh, Nevada, each was producing as much as Bangladesh uh, in 2013. And as it goes, uh, that year, one state uh, would rank among the top 10 nation states in the world, California about the same as Brazil. And uh, we had something like a dozen states that would rank among the top 25 nation states in the world, and all 50 among the top 97. Uh, and the World Bank basically gives figures for about 200 nation states and territories. So it's not, that's actually fairly impressive and why I've been doing this. I've been working with states and what they do internationally and basically trying to make the argument that they certainly could be significant players, particularly economically, in, uh, in the uh, international arena uh, if they become more engaged. Some are, some are not as engaged as they, they probably could be. So this gives you an idea. It's a di little di bit different, but uh, the United States economy, of course, is still the largest in the world, although China's catching and on a purchasing power basis. Uh, may purchasing power parity bases may have already caught up. This is basically using what we call nominal U.S. dollars. And I'll be working on the two 2014 map as soon as the World Bank comes out with some new uh, statistics for that year. The EU-U.S. trade, you can see going from 97 through last year, it's big. 
And the other thing that really stands out there is the big gap in terms of uh, a huge surplus for the EU in trade and goods with the United States, well over $100 billion uh, per year. So if there is some sort of an agreement, we were talking about a very significant trading relationship already. The difficult issues with TTIP, uh, is there sufficient value added? Are we going to get enough out of it in terms of additional trade, investment, that sort of activity for all the work we're putting into it? We have agricultural roadblocks, including uh, you know, genetically modified organisms, what will be allowed, what will not be allowed. Investor protection is a real big one. Some argue it's good for multinationals, not so much for small and medium-sized businesses, and not so good for the workforce. This is a big issue. I've been meeting in various European capitals uh, and you know, getting some feedback. Some of it is, looks pretty good. Some of it is not so good. But this is a big issue, what we call investor protection issues. And by the way, it's, uh, it's an issue that's not new. We have over 1,400 treaties uh, that deal with uh, investor state protection. And most of those treaties involve the EU, not the United States. This is something I believe we can work out, but it's, it, it is a stumbling block. There's concern about transparency in negotiations and the democratic process. So much has been secret. Uh, but we do know that if the President Obama is giving fast track, and I'll talk about that in a moment, uh, there will be a period of about 90 days where what is agreed to will go up to Congress and then there will be that 90-day period. So we'll know what is, is in the, the agreement. And there will be 90 days for the Congress to say yes or no to the agreement as a whole. Uh, there's a rise, of course, in European populism and nationalism. We see it manifested here and in the UK with the uh, referendum on continued membership in the EU, maybe coming forth next year or at the latest, the end of uh, 2017. And, uh, you know, the rise in uh, populism at the European Parliament, we'll have to see what impact that would have. And, of course, can you achieve consensus among all 28 nation states within the EU on an agreement with the U.S.? What would the Greek government uh, say if it's the current Greek government in place at that time? And we still don't have trade promotion authority in the U.S. Congress, which is fast track. And basically what that means is uh, Congress would give the president the right to negotiate the agreement and send the agreement up to both the House and the Senate and it would have to be passed in the exact form. No amendments. But Congress has the last say, yes or no. Now that uh, aspects of the Trade Promotion Authority have actually been around since the administration of Franklin Roosevelt. But most recently since about 1974, with the Trade Act of 1974. Uh, Barack Obama has not had this authority. It expired. The last time it was renewed, it expired early in the, uh, in the last decade. So he's never had uh, what we call fast-tracked or trade promotion authority. Now, it's recently passed the United States Senate, which is a big hurdle because you had to come up with 60 votes in order to be able to cut off a potential filibuster. It now must go through the uh, House of Representatives. And it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. And a lot of Republicans are going to support it. But there's some Republicans, particularly affiliated with the Tea Party, who are going to oppose it because they don't want to give Obama anything. And the Democrats are uh, a strong majority opposed, opposed giving the president uh, fast track. 
Now I need to go back a little bit and say that when uh, the NAFTA between the United States, Canada and Mexico was uh, negotiated, it was done mostly under the administration of uh, the first President Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush, and, uh, and Brian Mulroney in Canada. And then Chrétien came in to take over as Prime Minister in Canada, and uh, Bill Clinton came in to become President of the U.S. Clinton decided to go ahead. He said, even though it's, uh, it's been uh, negotiated by a Republican administration, he thinks this is good with some changes in the Environmental Commission, a few things like that, Workers' Rights Commission. And he agreed to go along with it. But even that being said, when it came to a vote yes or no in Congress under Fast Track, a majority of all Democrats in both the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate voted against it. They voted against their own president. So here you had a president who was a Democrat, and he couldn't even get a majority of his own representatives and senators to vote, it, uh, vote in favor of it. it were the, again, it was the Republicans were the ones that got it through. So we're sort of facing somewhat the, the same situation now with the Trade Promotion Authority and perhaps later on when it comes to, to ratifying both the TPP, uh, the Pacific Agreement, and the Transatlantic Agreement. So it's, uh, it's been difficult. It's been touch and go. And I, uh, in, uh, during the uh, last, almost the last half of last year, I was directing our program in Washington, D.C., and watching, walking the corridors of Congress from time to time, and, and the person who became the new head of the Finance Committee is a personal friend, uh, Orrin Hatch, from my home state. And uh, I was holding meetings, and, and it was really, it was still touch and go. And we don't know what's going to happen yet. It could, you could uh, not get the TPA, and if we don't get the TPA, you can pretty well kiss off both the uh, Pacific and Atlantic agreements. Need to have it, because Congress would play too many games if you don't have fast track in place. So that gives you an idea of some of the very difficult issues that are ahead. The vision of NAFTA, of course, uh, when it uh, went into effect to solidify North American trade and investment ties and harmonize some rules and regulations, a major step toward the creation, some thought at the time, of a free trade area in America. So there was a period of time when it looked like we would have free trade throughout the Western Hemisphere except for Cuba. But it didn't work. You know, Brazil had some second thoughts uh, about having the U.S. be more influential in trade affairs in this in South America, Argentina had some, obviously later Venezuela would, and others, so we never did get the FTAA. But at that time, as we moved into the 1990s, the um, NAFTA was to be a stepping stone towards a free trade agreement for the entire hemisphere. And it didn't happen, and it's not going to happen in the, in the near future. It helped bring greater prosperity to Mexico over time. Some argued it would curtail illegal immigration northward, because Mexico would do better economically. I would argue that Mexico has done better economically in the aggregate, but there are still some sectors that have uh, uh, suffered. Uh, but we do believe that since about 2007 or so, there's been no net new Mexican immigration to the United States, legal or illegal. Okay, there has been some changes there. And of course you say, well, why is that? Well, I mean, Mexicans love Mexico. If they can find uh, 
good enough paying jobs in Mexico, they're going to stay home. Obviously, after 9-11, we also tightened that border. You know, more than double the number of border agents. And so it's become much more difficult to even get into the U.S. safely, plus you have to put up with some, uh, some bandits and others who try to take whatever the person trying to go to the border has away from them before they even cross the border, and that can be dangerous. And, uh, but it is interesting that in terms of Mexico, at least, there probably has not been a net movement for several years. Now, maybe that will change. Now that the U.S. economy is back on its feet, that may become more attractive to some Mexicans. But you know, there are some jobs being created, not to the level that uh, Mexico would like. Uh, you notice perhaps the uh, articles in recent weeks about the big explosion in the, uh, in the Mexican uh, car industry, automobile industry. Tremendous number of, uh, tremendous amount of direct investment uh, going into Mexico in a variety of areas, and that's helped. We still have a lot, lot further to go, but there is progress being made. So that was, you know, the hope that this would mean that uh, there, the, the, the standard of living would increase in Mexico to the point where Mexicans would not want to come uh, to the United States. And there's been a mixed picture on that. Moving away again from branch plants and towards supply chains, and what I mean in plain English is the branch plants, when prior to the FTA uh, between the United States and Canada in 1989, and then NAFTA extended to Mexico in 94, there were su uh, sufficient barriers at both the uh, northern U.S. border and the southern U.S. border for U.S. companies to basically invest in branch plants in both Canada and Mexico, basically to service those domestic markets. Okay, And it's an expensive proposition to do that, but that got them beyond the tariff and non-tariff barriers. And of course, with the FTA and then with NAFTA, that ended. You no longer had to have branch plants. You could basically make your uh, industries in North America much more uh, rational and efficient, because then you could begin to service the entire North American market, as well as have what we call global mandates. So that, in terms of the area of investment, you get rid of the branch plants, you move more towards supply chains, you know, where you'll have your affiliate in Canada provide this widget that will go in this final product and the same in Mexico or in the U.S., and then you'll uh, ship that product around the world. Uh, in addition, NAFTA was uh, intended to protect Canada and Mexico from bouts of U.S. protectionism, which occur from time to time. And uh, to, to give you an illustration, uh, at least nine of the ten Canadian provinces export more goods to the United States than they do to the rest of Canada. So this is very big for Canadian industries. And as time has gone on, more and more Mexican uh, production is geared towards the United States as well. And so the notion is NAFTA will protect us from these periodic bouts of what goes on in Capitol Hill and Washington where they try to tighten things up. And it has helped. It hasn't been foolproof, uh, but it's, uh, it has helped. And then it also illustrates that Canada and Mexico could take advantage of this huge U.S. marketplace without being overwhelmed by U.S. political influence. That was the big worry back in, with the FTA, and that's why Brian Mulroney basically had to call an election after the Canadian Senate would not uh, approve the FTA. He, he still got back with the majority, a reduced majority, but that's why the Canadian Senate passed it. And, of course, eventually, you know, Mexico said, uh, 
yes to it as well. But always the, the worry that if you move too close to the U.S. orbit economically, then almost in, inevitably you're going to move closer to the U.S. Or, uh, orbit uh, politically and become more dominated by the United States. Most commentators would say that hasn't happened in terms of political domination. So that's the vision of NAFTA. What is North America? I mean, you're experts, so you all know what North America is. The Arctic Ocean to the Isthmus of Panama, you know, Central America and the Caribbean part of North America is all part of what we call North America. Uh, it's big. It's the third largest continent after Asia and Africa. It's the fourth largest continent in, in population. It's also the largest free trade area in the world, NAFTA, in terms of the volume of trade. Uh, but it's not the EU, and I'll talk about that in just a moment. And again, it's bringing together among the largest economies in the world. So in 2013, using World Bank nominal dollar data, uh, you can see how big the economies were. And that's the, the world's largest, 11th largest, and 15th largest economy that have joined together in NAFTA. Now, there are big differences, as I mentioned, between NAFTA and the EU. We're doing free trade in North America. You're headed towards a common integrated market in, in so many ways. NAFTA does promote investment cooperation, limited labor and environmental cooperation, but not a whole lot. NAFTA is limited to the movement of labor across national borders over a, uh, a set period of time. Like if you're a, you know, an executive with uh, Intel in the U.S., it's easy to basically get a visa to go work in Canada for a couple years or to go work in Mexico. You know, basically mostly professionals. And so it's helped in that arena. But NAFTA institutions are very small with very limited powers. We don't have the equivalent of an EU Council of Ministers, their commission, the parliament, the court of justice. We don't have that. NAFTA has no common currencies, you're well aware, whereas the Eurozone uh, is basically, uh, basically comprises 19 member states out of the EU's 28 member states. And the EU is infinitely more complicated than NAFTA is. You know, we're basically a free trade area in North America. And the EU promotes significant regional integration. NAFTA is very limited in terms of economic cooperation. And we're not headed in the direction of the EU. This, again, is basically the area covered by North America. And of course, the three major nations have joined together um, in, uh, in NAFTA. And again, this was a big move, particularly on the part of Mexico. Because Mexico, basically half of Mexico was absorbed by the United States and a fair amount by conquest. Benito Juarez probably said it, it may have been Porfirio Diaz, who said, you know, poor Mexico is so far from God and so close to the United States. You know, so there were, even moving into the 1980s, you know, there, uh, Mexico had an import substitution scheme, didn't do much with the U.S., didn't really want to do much with the U.S., and then to finally see the changes that transpired in the 1980s as, uh, as the decision is made in Mexico City, do we want to be maybe the, uh, the smallest of the developed economies or among the largest of the developing economies, the decision was made, let's go with the North. So they joined GATT, you know, the precursor to the World Trade Organization. And then eventually, you have the Mexican president coming forward and say, we want to do a free trade agreement with the U.S., which was almost monumental. 
And of course, Canada just stepped forward because it worried that Mexico might get a better agreement with the U.S. than Canada got under the FTA. And they also worried this would lead to the hub and spoke scenario where if you've got investment coming in from outside of North America, it would be logical that most of the investment would go to the U.S. because only the U.S. was the hub. It was the only nation which would have free trade with both the other partners. And so Canada did not want to see that happen. And so that's why Mulroney basically stepped in and said, well, we want to be a part of this uh, arrangement. Let's do it trilaterally. And finally, we get uh, NAFTA in uh, in 94. Uh, and to show something happened, things were going well, generally well. I mean, there were still problems. But then came 9-11. And I've written rather extensively on this, and I just think that NAFTA's momentum ended in 9-11, and almost entirely due to Washington. Almost entirely due to Washington. Let me just give you some figures. This was from the day before 9-11. The Canada-U.S. Free Trade Agreement had been in effect since 89. NAFTA uh, superseded it um, and went into effect in 94. Canada at the time had 30 million people, had a, a GDP a little bit more than a trillion Canadian dollars. The U.S. population at that time was 285 million. Uh, U.S. had a $10 trillion U.S. GDP. The Canadian dollar was worth 64 U.S. cents at that time. Two-way trade in goods in 2000 between the United States and Canada, $410 billion. No passports, passports were needed to visit either country. No passports were needed to visit between the United States nor Mexico as well. It had a, we had a very thin border. In, indeed, uh, particularly out west in my territory, at, uh, it was common for the, uh, in, in the more sparsely populated areas for the uh, uh, immigration and customs agents to go home in the evening and just put in the row uh, of an orange cone, just so you would know you were passing from one country into another. It was that lax. It was that lax in, in some parts, particularly out in the West. And so it truly could be called the world's longest undefended uh, bilateral border. And that's the day before 9-11. Let me show you what it was. This is a decade after 9-11. Washington proved that security trumped trade. NAFTA was less important in the minds of policymakers in Washington, including the White House, as well as Congress. Canada then had 34 million people. The U.S. was up to 312 million. The Canadian GDP was up to 1.6 trillion Canadian dollars, U.S. GDP up to 15 trillion U.S. dollars. Two-way trade was over a half trillion dollars U.S. in 2010. But look at this. Canadian exports to the United States were actually $50 billion Canadian less or lower in 2010 than in 2001. It had been a lost decade for the NAFTA partners in many respects. The U.S. share of total Canadian exports also went down significantly from 87% in 2000 down to 75% in 2011. And the Canadian dollar then was worth, actually it was above par, it was worth more than the U.S. dollar. What dramatic changes, but you can also see the world of hurt that a lot of Canadian companies suffered over that decade. A lot, a loss of a fair amount of their export markets as the United States had moved to thicken the borders, both with Canada 
and with uh, Mexico. Look at this as well. This is interesting. In June of 2010, U.S. visits by car to Canada were the lowest since 1972. The lowest since 1972, when the U.S. had 100 million fewer people. And so it, fall, it fell back to the 1972 levels. And part of the reason was that we instituted, the United States alone, that if you wanted to go visit Canada or Mexico, you now had to have a passport if you were a U.S. resident. You could get into Canada or Mexico, you just couldn't get back if you didn't have a passport. And we're to the point where roughly two-thirds of Americans don't have a passport. They don't carry a passport. So you can't go from Seattle to Vancouver. You can't go from San Diego to Tijuana. So you can imagine what that meant in terms of the trans-border movement of people having instituted that passport provision. And so more Canadians visit the U.S. annually than Americans visit Canada. Isn't that amazing? Canada has 35 million people. The U.S. has almost 320 million. And more Canadians visit the U.S. every year than Americans visiting Canada. And there's been a six-fold increase in U.S. agents along the Canadian border, plus drone and helicopter surveillance and all sorts of bells and whistles to basically try to uh, obstruct any illegal entry uh, from Canada into the U.S. And obviously we've done even more with the border uh, between the United States and Mexico. So we have thickened the borders, no orange cones any longer. Those days are gone, no undefended border. And this has had a negative impact on supply chains of goods, of services, as well as the movement of people. So my notion is we really hurt NAFTA a lot. And it's almost totally homemade in Washington, D.C. This was not a decision by Ottawa, not a uh, decision by uh, Mexico City. Almost all of it comes out of Washington, D.C. So this gives you an idea of uh, the number of passports in circulation in the United States. And you can see in 2013, about 117 million Americans had passports out of you know, slightly less than 320 million people. So you can see when it comes to the movement of people within North America, curtailed rather dramatically. The other thing to keep in mind is that uh, this is, of course, the famous Mount Rushmore. And you can see, you know, there's Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt and, uh, uh, and Jefferson and uh, Washington there. I think I got them right, don't I? <laughs> and... But from a Canadian perspective, they sort of see things this way. You know, there's some things that you just never think of, and like Mount Rushmore from the Canadian side. The Canadians have lost a lot of influence in Washington. And particularly during the time that, uh, that Bush II and even under President Obama, there's, it, the relationship has not been the best. Has not been the best, and a lot of things that the Canadians would like to see done, particularly in terms of liberalizing or thinning the border, just hasn't been accomplished. There are a lot of things that could be done that should have been done, from my estimation, that haven't been done. And this is something that we really have to look at. We have become more uh, introspective, more looking naval gazing in the U.S., particularly from Washington, and not living, uh, listening nearly as much to our allies like we once did, our nearest neighbors to the north and south. And that's something that you know I regret 
and think, you know, by this time we should have normalized coming back. I mean, after all, you understand 9-11, the great upheaval. Well, you know, we're about 15 years from that time. Shouldn't that pendulum have swung back a little bit to what was transpiring before 9-11? Not nearly enough. Not nearly enough. We're still, we still bring up 9-11 all the time. We still say that you know, security has to trump uh, economic issues. And I just, I believe that it's really hurt us a lot economically. It's hurt us in terms of our political influence. It's hurt us in terms of allied relations. And it's hurt us in terms of uh, progress in the North American relationship. Okay, so I'm just about done. Uh, Fry's recommendations for improving NAFTA. Uh, and U.S. stereotypes of Canada as a peaceful, sleepy hollow, and Mexico as a modern-day tombstone, we really have still a lot of persistent stereotypes. Uh, even in Washington. Even in Washington. I mean, in Washington, even years later, you had Hillary Clinton, and you had Newt Gingrich, and you had John McCain saying that at least some of the terrorists in 9-11 had come from Canada. Absolutely false. Absolutely false. These are, these are top officials. And even when Janet Napolitano came on to be, become head of the Department of Homeland Security, she said some of the terrorists had come from Canada. Nonsensical statements like that. So, you know, we've got to dissipate stereotypes and uh, understand, for example, Canada ranks in the top 12 nation states in the world in terms of uh, its economic size. It's a dynamic economy. It's been hurt recently because of the, it's so uh, dependent on one industry, particularly oil, and in, uh, a little bit beyond that, commodities, basic commodities. It certainly has been hurt. Alberta has certainly taken a hit recently. But it's still a very dynamic economy within a global perspective. And Mexico has been moving up. And we believe that in the not-too-distant future, Mexico will have a larger economy than Canada has. It will still take some time. But, you know, these are, and this doesn't, coincide with a lot of views of the average American or even some of the average politicians in Washington. And we've got to get away from that. We need, from my vantage point, we need to uh, dis disband the DHS, the Department of Homeland Security. Now, I've directed our program in Washington, D.C. more than any other faculty member uh, on my campus. And I've had a variety of students intern with DHS, and it's amazing how they almost say to a person that we come up with a creative idea, but there's so many layers of bureaucracy that it never gets up to the top. You know, it's just, it's sort of your stereotyped image of what the bad things that occur in, in ultra layers of bureaucracy. That's how DHS has been. So I think the Department of Homeland Security should be disbanded. Don't, don't hold your breath on this one. It's not gonna happen overnight and it uh, basically put in uh, the hands of uh, of a committee uh, within the White House structure itself in the in the uh, Eisenhower uh, what we used to call the old executive office building right next to the uh, to the uh, White House uh, we should cr create a world-class border infrastructure we're experimenting and particularly between the United States and Canada with some of the border crossings such as between Oh, in the area around Plattsburgh, New York, and Montreal, doing some things there, but not nearly enough. That border has become a tremendous impediment to the movement of trade and, and people. 
We need to cut back on the increase in border patrol agents. I don't know why we've had, it. We, you know, we just, you know, we had some job growth, but a lot of it's in protection areas. And it just doesn't make that much sense. You know, we haven't had that much of a threat from the Mexican side. We haven't had that much threat from the Canadian side of Mexico. We worry about illegal immigration. We worry about drug cartels. But, you know, we, we've gone overboard. We really have gone overboard. And we can begin to relax somewhat and still maintain uh, a tight security. I think we need to push for a nearly self-sufficient North American uh, energy sector. We'll never get totally self-sufficient, but we know what Canada can do. The United States has had an amazing revolution. It's, it's controversial, but fracking. I mean, we have had months over the past couple of years where we have produced more oil than Saudi Arabia. The United States has. And we've had months where we produce more, uh, excuse me, we produce more natural gas than Russia has. And we've had months where we produce more oil than Saudi Arabia. This fracking has been really revolutionary. And, we, and as I said, we know what Canada can do. We know the potential in Mexico, and particularly with Nieto doing some changes in, uh, uh, in the, uh, the state-owned uh, petroleum uh, company. So the, the, the possibility is there for us to be just about energy self-sufficient and indeed to be able to begin to export some of our production, which may take some of the pressure off the EU in terms of being able to uh, diversify its sources of both natural gas and oil. Uh, we need to uh, establish um, a customs union between the U.S. and Canada to start out and eventually with Mexico. Some would argue this is a two-speed system, and it is to a certain extent. But we're to the point where, at least in some areas, we could have a customs union, particularly with Canada. And actually, we could do a lot of this with Mexico, where we'd have common external tariffs, you know, much as you have in the European Union. This is not a big step, but it could be done. It's feasible. We need to reject the fortress American mentality. I mean, what we've been doing with Mexico is basically producing... A, our little version of the Great Wall of China. That basically from San Diego uh, eastward to the Gulf of Mexico, border with Texas and Louisiana, that uh, we are building a fence. We're building, this is 2,000 miles. And uh, it's almost a fetish that we gotta get this, this fence. And as some astute uh, commentator has said, well, you build a, 11-foot fence, and there's going to be a big market for 12-feet ladders, you know. And uh, we've just, we've, we've been obsessive here. And in the case of, uh, of Canada, it's sort of a marginal line, you know, outposts. Now look at, between Canada and the United States, we have over 5,000 miles of common borders. First of all, at the 49th parallel, and then between uh, B.C. and Yukon and Alaska. Over 5,000 miles. And we've literally spent billions and billions of dollars on this. And what does the Government Accountability Office say? Hey, guys, you did a good job. We now basically think that you have gained control, effective control over 1% of the border. It's crazy. It's crazy. And so, you know, I think that we've, we've got to move away from that bunker mentality. Uh, and we've been too slow to do it. And I think I'm in favor of TTIP between the EU, and I'd like to see it extended to NAFTA. 
And you know, my notion is Canada already has the agreement, not yet ratified. Mexico has had an agreement with the EU since 2000. So there's no reason why if we get the TTIP, why it couldn't be actually a North American uh, EU uh, accord. So this is the, the grand bargain. NAFTA has the world's largest regional economy. It's got about uh, 475 million people and a combined GDP of almost $20 trillion in uh, 2013. To put that in perspective for you, the EU is the world's second largest regional economy, has more people, but notice the difference isn't that great. And, but its combined GDP was um, about $2.5 trillion less than that of the NAFTA countries. NAFTA, of course, is a potential uh, supplier of energy. It's an energy superpower uh, developing and is a potential supplier of energy to the EU. You could have a North Atlantic free trade zone, which would help establish trade and investment rules globally, not just in terms of the North Atlantic, and hopefully strengthen the WTO rules, which of course are more multilateral. So this should not just be a, this, uh, uh, you know, a little club between the EU countries and NAFTA countries. There's no reason why these provisions cannot be extended to other countries. So it doesn't have to be something that's you know, basically a country club. It can, if others are willing to sign on, then let them do it and abide by the rules. A North Atlantic free trade zone would also bolster security cooperation in a very uncertain uh, international environment. You know, that we worry these days uh, about, you know, would there be a threat in the future from Russia? How about the uncertainty in the Middle East? How about the uncertainty in parts of North Africa? Uh, how about East Asia? How about the Arctic polar region and what could happen there? And so probably if we get better economic ties, it may lead to more uh, effective um, geostrategic uh, cooperation as well. And so if we were to do it, and again, this is Fry's pipe dream, at least for the moment, you could create a free trade zone. There would be a combined market of almost 1 billion people and an annual GDP of over $37 trillion. And that's, that's pretty impressive. So this is basically my argument uh, where, where the North American countries, uh, the United States, Canada, Mexico, can work with the 28 in the EU. And... Uh, we can do much more. And it goes beyond just the economic ties. It, I think uh, it would uh, strengthen ties in a number of other important areas at a time of uncertainty when it looks like we still do have somewhat of a North Atlantic drift and a very significant shift going to Asia and the Pacific. So uh, that's my case, guys. And <laughs>